welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill. This is episode 272. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you're all recovered from your uh, steady diet of hard-boiled Easter eggs and chocolate bunnies. Good luck with that. Please do not send me any horror stories about that digestive ad- digestive adventure. Digestive? Digestious? No. Digestive. I don't know if I've ever, ever used digestive. Digest. You know, digest. Uh, digesting. Digested. I don't know that I've ever used the word digesting. Digestive. Digestive adventure. This is a first for Atari Bytes, and indeed, for my life. Well, that was fun. Alright, moving on. This is a rare Friday night recording for me. I just got off work, sitting at the microphone. My usual recording time is disruptive because of some travel. So I'm sitting here enjoying a free plug here. Athletic Brewing Company, Pilot Program, Non-Alcoholic, Single Hop IPA. So you know things are going to get crazy up in here. That's what the kids say, right? Up in here? Anyway, so it's a tasty beverage. Not alcoholic, but I put it in a pint glass so I can pretend. Mmm. No buzz. Anyway, what's new with you? There is absolutely nothing going on in the world right now. Nope. Nobody's got COVID. Nobody's getting shot. uh, Like with a gun or a needle. No frustrations in Congress. No unhappiness in the world. Everybody's just hanging around, not drinking alcohol, and playing video games. Everything is great. Hey everybody, Future Bill here. After I recorded this part of the episode, I heard from Patreon supporter Jason... Once again, advocating for the Retron 77. He's not the only one. I've also heard from some of you on Twitter. I get it. The Retron 77 is awesome. I may check it out at some point. Uh, Jason had comments about that and some other things, so here's what he said. First off, you know, he had called it the Hyper 1077 before. I apologize for that. Uh, No worries, Jason. I didn't know the difference. And yes, I will sleep more soundly with this information. He goes on. uh, Thanks again for the Jason report. I guess this is another Jason report, so you're welcome, which I think adds a new dimension to an already great episode. Thank you for that. Interestingly, you felt the same desire to play Atari 2600 in the console form. I do. I always prefer hardware to uh, emulators. Therefore, he says, my suggestion to look into the Retron 77, which offers that with modern sensibilities, HDMI, saving game states, and other innovations, I suppose that maybe one listener might have purchased the unit, and that would be a good thing. I suppose you want me to mention Trump, so I just did. Well, thank you for that. Although, honestly, if no one ever mentioned Trump again, that'd be okay with me. Today's feedback is, you needn't be so harsh on the 2600's limitations. This unit was literally the first popular console system and was actually cutting edge when it was released. However, four decades later, it's obvious that the games will look incredibly antiquated. I think the way to enjoy Atari 7800, aside from you needing to own a Hyperkin Retron 77... Geez, Jason, do you have stock in the company or something? Just kidding. 
uh, is to admire the blocky monochromatic characters, the distorted sounds, and its other strange but beautiful qualities. Of course, some games have transcended the typical limitations in terms of graphics and sound, but that is due to adding additional chips in the cartridges, which might not have been feasible for many of the third-party developers. This coming episode will be about Tempest. Actually, this episode is about Tempest. That's how time travel works. I'm speaking to you from the future. And if you compare it to the coin-op or other ports, it will seem it will seem ridiculous. But once again, I urge you to see Atari in its proper context, a console born of the early 70s. Lastly, I played Kangaroo for the first time on 2600, and it was fun. It's been a while since I played it. I also agreed that it was fun, I think. Uh, but obviously only, he says, when watched through the proper lens. I own all the new consoles, so it's not like I don't get it. But when you see Atari 2600, it's like old movies. The special effects are bad. The technical elements are primitive, but you still can enjoy it. Atari Bytes is one of my favorite podcasts. Wow, thank you for that. And I hope to find some horribly, or some horrible Porky's-type game. Patrick McCarthy, you see what you've done. To suggest for review, which would be incredibly entertaining, especially if it noticeably aggravates you, just for giggles, of course. Here's where you write, that's typically what I do, so I don't expect to be changing it anytime soon, but I thank you for listening. Yeah. That's pretty much what I was going to say, Jason. Well done. I responded to him, and, and I'll respond to you guys. To, to make it clear, I love the Atari as it is. When I mention, uh, as I'm talking about the games, the, the limitations of the hardware and the software and things, honestly, I'm mostly doing it because I assume that's what you guys expect me to point out. And usually, frankly, it's because I'm reading something where someone else who's more knowledgeable than me is pointing out those limitations. I look at the games, and I see... Uh, what I saw as a kid. Just these fun, sort of whimsical-looking games. Occasionally, I will be frustrated with the limitations of a game really only if I feel like it affects the ability to play the game. If it's just a limitation of the game, well, that's fine. I don't care. I don't really know how they're programmed. I'm not a programmer myself. I don't have a computer background. I'm sure I've mentioned before on the podcast, the closest, closest I ever came was, you know, one semester Apple basic programming class in high school, which I enjoyed, but obviously that's nothing near knowing how to program uh, uh, an Atari game. So if I'm critical, Jason, it's not because I really get wound up about the limitations of the game. I really only mention it either because someone more knowledgeable than me has mentioned it and I'm passing that on to you guys or because I felt like, in a specific instance, the limitations of the game got in the way of, frankly, me having fun with the game. So that's it. So, love the hardware, love the games, love its faults. I'm just a loving dude. So, thanks for your comments, Jason. See, I'm saying it now. Thanks for your comments, Jason. Keep them coming. And since it looks like you guys really don't want me to get this episode edited... While I was trying to put it together, I got another comment. This one over on the Patreon from Sean Courtney. Uh, hi, Sean. He said, regarding Cubert's Cubes, I tried playing Cubert's Cubes on Atari 2600 several times, and it just doesn't work for me. I think the compressed play field hurts. I feel very claustrophobic when playing it. The arcade version is on a 5x5 grid, not 4x4, and it's difficult to tell the orientation of the cubes. C-U-B-E-S. Then he had... That's helpfully in parentheses, or cubes, Q-U-B-E-S. I recommend trying the arcade version, though. In fact, ever since I got into the arcade version, I find it hard to play the original Cubert. I like the new twist on the Cubert concept. I'd especially love to see it on the 7800. So would I, which, uh, even though it is apparently a thing that does not exist. I have not played the arcade version of cubes, 
but I would be open to checking it out. If anybody else has thoughts on Qbert's Cubes or anything really, you know how to contact me. Thanks, Sean. Now, I'm going to hop back in my time machine and take you back to the past, by which I mean the rest of this episode. Oh, I almost forgot. Jason had a recommendation for an upcoming episode as well, that recommendation being the Mattel Electronics Network's Tron Deadly Discs, which I had to go back and look to see that and make sure that I hadn't done this already. I feel like I did, but I couldn't find it in the episode list. It's been on my uh, to-do list for a while. I'm sure I'll get to it eventually. He calls it one of the greatest games in Atari's collection. Better yet, features the Intellivision-style Running Man. He includes some screenshots of the uh, the box for both the Atari and the television vision, uh, versions. Honestly, Jason, I, I didn't pull out my list, but I think, no promises here, but I think it's on my list of games to do in the in the upcoming uh, Intellivision month. I don't recall if you said how long you've been listening to the podcast, but every year, for those of you who are newer to, newer to the show, I devote all the episodes in the month of June to Intellivision games, because I have an Intellivision console as well, so I play Intellivision games that whole month. And I think maybe Deadly Discs is on an upcoming, is on the list for this year. Again, no promises. I don't remember for sure, but it may be. So we'll see. Oh, he also wanted me to know that his game room is decorated with rock memorabilia, not all Trump. He included a photo to prove that. Very impressive. He also suggests the Mattel M Network Tron joystick, if you have a desire for an awkward blue joystick. Uh, I do not, honestly. Uh, if anyone of you has that joystick and would like to comment on that, please do. Um, he also showed me some other items that he has, including the Iron Man gaming chair. Jason, I'm getting the impression you are serious about these games. I'm a hack, basically. I grab my joystick, that sounds terrible, and I sit in front of the TV, usually on the floor, or I'm getting old now, in a chair, just a plain old chair, and uh, and I do my thing. So yeah, so if anybody has any comments about Tron Deadly Discs, or gaming chairs, or weird joysticks, or grabbing them, feel free to shout out to the podcast, since apparently now I'm doing gaming paraphernalia segments on the show. All right, back to your regularly scheduled broadcast. So, why don't we get on to this week's game, which is perhaps not so great, but we'll find out. This week's game is Tempest. From 1984-ish, this is the unfinished prototype for Atari's adaptation of the uh, arcade legend. And they didn't finish it, which I think I just said, but it bears repeating. Because, yeah, you play this thing and you're like, where's the rest of it? Even I, a uh, non-gaming, not-gaming expert, non-gamer, pseudo-gamer, I don't know. Apparently I'm very big on analyzing my words in real time here. Someday I should actually write a script for this show. Nah. Tempest is a game... I actually had to think about this and, and to realize I hadn't done the game on the show before. It's one of those titles you hear, right? Uh, certainly in the arcade context. I am certain I played it in the arcade as a kid, but I don't remember it being like a, wow, I gotta go play Tempest kind of game. Although I suppose it was for some people. I have no specific memory of seeing it in the arcade. 
though the way it's described, I, I have to think it was pretty cool. You know, going for the uh, early 80s version of 3D and all that, it doesn't translate so well, spoiler, to the Atari, at least not in the uh, partial effort that we see here. Evidently, there is some uh, confusion or lack of knowledge as to who programmed this thing. Michael Kasaka apparently did the graphics. Atari Protos observed that a lot of times in life when there are games that you can adapt, maybe there are times when you should not actually do that. This was one of those times, in their opinion, and in my limited knowledge of programming, I would have to agree. It's a 3D vector game that they tried to do on the 2600. I don't know how you do that, or even a lot about how that works, but I can clearly see it didn't work so well. So apparently, and like I said, I don't have any specific memory, and I'll be honest, I didn't go back and you know, look for YouTube videos or anything, but evidently how, the, how it looks in the arcade is you've got these sort of diagonal tubes sort of spiraling out or, or you know, shooting out from the center of the screen, um, make these weird patterns. Atari, with its limited hardware, software, couldn't do complicated patterns all that well. So instead of doing 3D, which they couldn't do, of course, it's sort of a flat shape, which the Atari Protoss review says is sometimes jokingly compared to, women's, compared to women's underwear. And I had to look at it for a long time, trying to figure out, that doesn't look like a bra to me. And then I realized, oh, maybe they mean the, the bottom underwear. Like, uh, prepare to giggle, panties, because panties is a funny word, um, I guess. And I guess it does kind of look like that. I think it's just as fair to say that it looks like tidy whities only blue, but whatever. Suffice to say, it's not a th rendering of 3D tubes in complicated geometric patterns. It's kind of this, uh, it looks a little bit like the Superman logo on my screen, only again, blue, and you know, no S in the middle. So the enemies. I don't know. The review, this review kind of describes it as the enemies coming out from each side. I guess that's kind of what they're doing. They look to me like more like they appear from the top of whatever the shape is. And then you're on the bottom and you can kind of move in like a half circle kind of thing around the bottom of this shape. And you shoot at the enemies, obviously, as they're shooting at you. I'm guessing this looks really cool in our tape cabinet. Not so cool on an Atari. It's, it, it's awkward. You shoot, and you can hit them, but then when they shoot, their bullets just kind of float around for a little bit, and then sometimes, all of a sudden, you'll be told you've lost a life, even though you don't really see where you got hit, so that's a little frustrating. There's also no buffer. It's a very small, even though the screen is huge, the actual playing area is very small. You've got basically just, you're limited to just that Superman symbol, since that's what I've decided to go with, because again, panties, funny work. So, very quickly, the uh, enemies are right on top of you. Flipper and Super Flipper and Bob and Noreen or whatever they're called. I, I forget what they're called, but they're on top of you pretty quick. Preto says, For some reason, the board seems to flux and change a bit as things move around the screen. This is probably the result of a programming glitch. The board, uh, the board is segmented into what could be called tubes, if you use your imagination, but these tubes don't seem to correspond to where the real tubes, which are invisible, are. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe there's more there than you can actually see. I don't know. If there's a third thing, Proto says, that the 2600 doesn't do well is 3D perspective, which I've already kind of mentioned. Atari couldn't get around that one. The 3D perspective is what makes Tempest Tempest. 
They tried to simulate this by changing the enemy's size to make it look like it was getting closer. Okay, so maybe that's what's going on. By putting them right on top of you, maybe, is how they're trying to do 3D, I guess? I don't know. There aren't nearly enough frames of animation to do this, so the enemies sort of jump forward in an awkward fashion. The enemy graphics are very blocky and becomes even more evident as the size is increased when they approach the outer edge of the tube. There are four different types of enemies, flippers, flipper, okay, not super flippers, flipper tankers, pulsars, and fuse balls. The controls are frustrating. There appear to be places, set places where your blaster can move to hidden tubes, but they don't seem to correspond to the shape on the screen. Lining up your shots with the incoming enemies is very difficult because you're not quite sure where the next hidden tube is. Okay, maybe that's what's going on. When it looks like I'm not hitting what I'm shooting at and vice versa, maybe that's because the bullets are going into this tube thing that you can't really see. I, I don't know. This wouldn't be so bad if the bullets didn't have a ha bad habit of disappearing when too many objects are on the screen, probably due to flicker. This can lead to some mysterious deaths from invisible bullets. Well, yeah, I'm aware of that, Protoss, thank you. Thankfully, you have your super zapper in this version, which can be activated by pressing up and fire. I tried to do that a couple of times. Thankfully, you have your super zapper in this version, which can be activated by pressing up and fire. I tried to do that a couple of times, just for cuz, and it didn't do anything. It didn't matter. It was pointless. To be honest, I only played this game a few times. I got bored immediately. There was enough there, there, to engage me enough to play anymore. So, uh, that's about all I got as far as the gameplay. Proto says there was another version of the prototype that came later and was reviewed in Ultimate Gamer Magazine, but it's not known what happened in that prototype. I know nothing about it. If any of you has any more information about that or about the review in Ultimate Gamer, uh, let me know. They credit Carla Maninsky, or at least identify her as the person generally identified as the programmer, but some other programmers seem to recall that someone else worked on Tempest. Carla herself shed some light on this when she mentioned that the prototype we have isn't her version at all. More digging shows the current prototype, dated 1584, was made long after Carla had left Atari. It appears to, uh, Atari decided to assign another programmer to make a new version after she left, rather than use the existing code, and unfortunately that version remains lost, and the identity of the programmer behind the more recent version remains a mystery. I'm not rich or famous. I'm not a movie star, rock icon, first responder, nurse, doctor, or anybody else whom we all look up to. I'm just a schnook. Just like Bill, I love to tell stories. Unlike Bill, though, I'm not creative enough to write my own, so I just tell my own real-life stories in this book-read-by-the-author-style podcast. All about life lessons growing up, and every episode, a segment about music. Music that I love, artists that I admire, and sometimes even my own music. You can find Autobiography of a Schnook on all your favorite podcast suppliers, or you can go to schnookpodcast.com. That's S-C-H-N-O-O-K, podcast.com. And I firmly believe the good goes around, and I sincerely hope that Autobiography of a Schnook proves to be some good that goes around your way. The Atari Compendium has an entry about Tempest. They said that a promo box does exist for this game, as well as some alternate artwork intended for the 5200 version. At least two different prototypes exist. The earlier version, dated 1584, is very similar to a later version, dated 22884, 
except it lacks a copyright and a title screen. Both versions are incomplete and only show one layout. A photo of the box also appeared in a photo in the March 1983 issue of Atari Club magazine. As of now, the only person who has a copy of the later version is John Scrutch. Both appeared in an article in the January 1996 issue of Ultimate Gamer. Due to its CX number, this may have been slated to become an Atari Club exclusive release title. Among the tropes that TV tropes bothered to look for in Tempest, uh, I think they're looking more at the arcade version, an artifact. The illustrations on the side of the original cabinet show actual monsters rather than abstract squiggles. Asteroids monster. The, tanker, the tankers will split into two flippers when shot at. Later on in the yellow levels, they can split into fuse balls and pulsars. Color-coded characters. Your player is yellow at the start. Play field is blue. Spikes are green. Enemies are red and purple. Everything changes colors after the cycle of 16 playfields reset. I'm not sure how those things qualify as tropes exactly, but there you go. Tempest, the arcade game or the Atari prototype, should not be confused with The Tempest, which is a play by some English playwright. I don't know if you heard of him or not. William Shakespeare, I guess? I don't know. I guess he's supposed to be famous or something. Probably written in 1610 to 1611, thought to be one of the last plays that he wrote alone. After the first scene, which takes place on a ship at sea during a tempest, which is just a big storm, the rest of the story is set on a remote island, where the sorcerer Prospero, a a complex and contradictory character, lives with his daughter Miranda and his two servants, Caliban, a savage monster figure, and Ariel, an airy spirit. The play contains music and songs that evoke the spirit of enchantment on the island. It explores many themes, including magic, betrayal, revenge, and family. In Act 4, a wedding mask, M-A-S-Q-U-E, serves as a play within the play and contributes spectacle, allegory, and elevated language. It's listed as the first of Shakespeare's comedies, but deals with both tragic and comic themes, and modern criticism has created a category of romance for this and other other of Shakespeare's late plays. According to Spark Notes, sometime between 1611 and 1613, Shakespeare returned to his family in Stratford, where he would spend his remaining years. Big changes in his family preceded his return. In 1607, his eldest daughter, Susanna, married a Stratford doctor named John Hall. The following year, she gave birth to a daughter, Elizabeth. Shakespeare strongly favored Susanna, since upon his death, he willed her all of his property and most of his wealth. The strong connection Shakespeare felt with Susanna is worth noting in relation to his final plays. Between 1608 and 1612, he penned four plays about powerful, weary old men who, suffering bad behavior, is redeemed by their loving daughters. Pericles, Cymbeline, The Winter's Tale, and The Tempest. The Tempest, the last play Shakespeare wrote alone, may be read as the playwright's farewell to the stage. The play ends with Prospero turning to the audience, uh, spoiler by the way, renouncing magic and asking forgiveness for any harm he has done. Quote, as you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free, close quote. After writing The Tempest, Shakespeare took on an apprentice, the playwright John Fletcher, who would go on to be his successor as writer for The King's Men. Fletcher collaborated with Shakespeare on three final plays, Henry VIII, The Two Noble Kingsmen, and finally Cardenio, which has since been lost. Shakespeare retired from writing around 1213, and he spent his remaining years in Stratford looking after his business interests and his family until his death on April 23, 1616 cause of his death remains unknown, though circumstantial evidence strongly suggests he may have contracted the waterborne disease known as typhoid. Shakespeare was buried in the same parish church in Stratford where he had been baptized 52 years earlier. Seven years later, the two actors, two actors from The King's Men published 36 of Shakespeare's play in a collection that has come to be known as The First Folio. 
This volume divided the plays into comedies, tragedies, and histories, and it remains our primary source for Shakespeare's work. All of which is very interesting, none of which has anything to do with Tempest, the arcade, or Atari game. But as you know, if you've been listening to the show for a while, wildly divergent side roads is really what this show is about. Thank you for joining me on the ride. Alright, after the break, There they hoist us to cry to the sea that roared to us, to sigh to the winds whose pity, sighing back again, did us but loving wrong. Prospero, The Tempest, Act 1, Scene 2. After the break, we find out if my poetry rivals Shakespeare. Hmm. The solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit, shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant, faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. The Tempest, Prospero, Act 4, Scene 1. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, you have joined Masterpiece Atari Bites. This week on the stage, we have... Tempest, an unfinished work, so we'll see if we can figure out what was in the writer, nay, the programmer's mind. So, here we have the uh, legendary women's underwear design, I guess. That's kind of what it looks like, I don't know. And I just died. You move in sort of this half circle thing around what is supposed to be the, the 3D tubes layout and all of that. Your ship, I guess, is just sort of a round oval or oval shaped ship. There's supposed to be four different types of monsters. There's really only this one sort of pink bird looking thing. Just on this level. The controls are a little awkward. It's a little and somehow I died. I'm not sure what happened. Oh, nope. There we go. Now I died. I'm going to start that again. Um, your bullets just sort of float, and maybe they hit something, maybe they don't. Especially when the uh, enemies are shooting at you. And there, he just sort of jumped and got me, somehow. I have to imagine this looked way cooler in the arcade with the uh, graphics that they could pull off versus what the Atari could do. I have to think this would have looked a lot better even if they had finished it. I guess you have to cut them some slack. This is not a finished game. I guess I jumped a level there? I don't know. And then I died somehow. And then I died again. See that flicker? I think that was my super blaster, or whatever it's called. Yeah, and then I died again. That was pitiful. I think even if I got good, so to speak, at this game, it wouldn't be all that much better. And it's not any fun at all. So, uh, on that happy note, back to you in the studio. Hey everyone, this is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Car by Car podcast. Do you like Atari? Of course you do. What about the 8-bit computer line? It was one of the best. 
Well, how about you consider joining Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review the cartridge-based games for Atari's 8-bit computer line. We also review budget games, which are mostly released only in the UK. But that's not all. We also dig up game history, share personal experiences, and perform questionable comedy. You'll get all of that and for free just by listening to us on either iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's X-E-G-S, the number 8, bit.com. And when you're done listening, please send us your hate mail because we really need the feedback so we know someone is tuning in. Hey, let's take a break from you listening to me talk so that you can listen to me talk. Hell's Serial, Very Short Stories Fortified with Essential Syllables, is the new short story collection from, well, me. Every box, or book, is chock full of bite-sized stories in every genre from sci-fi to fantasy to literary fiction to cheesy spy stories and everything in between. Zombies in Love, Twisted Car Races, and the aforementioned Devilish Breakfast Food are just some of the tasty bites you'll find. Toy surprises? You bet. How about social commentary and the meaning of life? Beats a decoder ring any day. With both funny stuff and drama, Hell's Cereal gives you the marshmallows and the toasted oat flakes. Oh, and words. Lots of those, too. Pick up Hell's Cereal, very short stories fortified with essential syllables, wherever you'd like to get your books. Not cereal. Here's the thing about Tempest, the prototype. It seems a little unfair to be critical of Tempest, the prototype, because it was never released, because Atari apparently realized that it sucked. Also, it was 1984, and evidently, also it was 1984, and, you know, video games were crashing and all that. So, who knows what happened to it, why it wasn't finished, what could have been if it was finished. All I know is what we got, even to someone who's not an expert gamer like myself, is clearly not all there. And what is there isn't really fun at all. So, uh, it is what it is. It's a hint at what might have been. I, as a good podcaster, I probably should have looked at this. I don't know if someone has tried to finish this, as it were, uh, for like a homebrew or something. I would be curious to see a more modern attempt at a Tempest-type game. Uh, If anyone knows if there's anything out there, let me know. And I might be curious to check it out. In the meantime, if you have other thoughts about The Tempest, or Tempest, or Shakespeare, or playwriting, or whatever. I've done some playwriting. I like playwriting. Uh, So if you want to talk to me about playwriting, go ahead. I'm easy. Just hit me up in uh, one of the ways that you can do that, which I will tell you at the end of the show. It's story time. Atari Bites Yes, it's story Story, story, story time With Bill In honor of Shakespeare Okay, not really It's just what was in my head this week This week's story is another entry from Bad Poetry Corner And it is titled Parched in a Tempest I poured a cup of tea today People were weirdly furious A teapot tempest engulfed us. Hey, settle down, it's just Earl Grey. Drink only coffee, they did say. I'm not so sure. So much to drink. So very parched, but I I must think. Eager hands thrust at me their cups, but none of them soak my thirst up. I 
might just in plain water sink. Hi, this is 8-Bit Rocket, Jeff Fulton from the Into the Vertical Blank Generation Atari podcast. And you are listening to the incomparable William Pepper and his wonderful stories of the game within a game on the Atari Bytes podcast. When you are done here, come visit us in the Vertical Blank. Now, back to Bill. And that's our show. Big thanks to Bill Shakespeare. You're an okay dude, dude. Thanks to Kevin McLeod and Comptech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. Thanks to Sean Courtney for the Storytime theme. Hop into your nearest tube for a wild ride through the storm that is Apple Podcasts to leave a tempestuous five-star review of this show. Email the show at AtariBytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at AtariBytes or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. Also, look us up on Instagram. Don't forget you can call us too. I am never ever going to answer the phone. But don't take it personally. You can leave a voicemail about pretty much anything you want. And I'll probably play it on the show. 563-265-1978 is your key to getting your voice on this podcast. Looking forward to hearing from you. Check out the website, www.carnivalofgleecreations.com. Over there you're going to find information, social media, show notes, all sorts of goodness about this podcast, Atari Bytes, and my other show, It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown, which is a monthly show dedicated to anything and everything, and I do mean everything, related to the Peanuts universe. Snoopy, Charlie Brown, all the stuff that goes with it. The website also has information about books that I've written, like the short story collection, Hell Serial, very short stories fortified with essential syllables, and other books that I've written, and a link and links to just a few of the places that you can go to order those books. And there's information over there about other stuff that I've worked on, too. I've done some playwriting. There's a little bit of information about some of those that I've done. Not everything, but some of them that I've done. And, you know, other stuff that I've been up to. So go check it out. You can also help support the show financially. There is a cost to doing a podcast. Got to keep the lights on in the studio and all that. Um, so if you go to the Atari Bytes page on Patreon.com, link in the show notes, you can become a supporter that way. And depending on the level that you subscribe at, you can get bonus stuff. You can get episodes early. Usually these episodes are done and in the can, so to speak, before Sunday. And you don't have to wait till Sunday necessarily if you subscribe at the, uh, I think it's the $2 a month level. Um, you can get episodes early. At the $3 a month level, you get uh, that. You also get bonus stuff like really truly awful video of the field report from every episode as well as other things that i throw up there every now and then too at four bucks a month you get all of that plus you can help program the show by suggesting some games for me to play um, it's a bargain at at twice the price plus the greatest part is you get into an exclusive club by which i mean you get to you know look over your shoulder warily at this crew Michael Tyler, Jose Gazeta, Sean Courtney, M. West, Jim Doble, Mike, uh, Patrick McCarthy, Jeremy L., and Jason Schiffman, all of whom I think uh, I give great thanks to for supporting the show, and you can hang out with them. How cool is that? I think I said how cool is that already in the episode, but you know what? 
It's so cool. I gotta say it twice. Okay, we're about out of here. All that's left is to tell you next time on Atari Bytes. We're playing Bermuda Triangle, which is a title I heard somewhere once. I know nothing about the game, but I'm intrigued. So I'm going to check it out next week. Join me. Bring a compass and a change of underwear, because from what I hear, once you go into the Bermuda Triangle, you get lost. And I don't know if they have a Walmart there to buy new underwear. So bring some with you. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you.